Behind every success story, there is a long line of triumphs and defeats that remain hidden from others. These stories get condensed into journeys that minimize the struggle and wrap up with a happy ending. But we know that's not how life works. That's where From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay comes in. On today's show, you'll hear honest conversations about the challenges that Mark's guest faced and how they overcame adversity. Now, here is your host, Mark Azoulay. Welcome back to From the Ashes. I'm your host, Mark Azoulay, and we're back with Rick Tivers, who, Rick, your episode is the number one episode. You're the most popular From the Ashes episode. Well, thank you. People love talking about sex addiction. People love talking about sex. So if you haven't listened to it, if you're a listener out there, I think it's like episode four. It's about sex addiction. You talked about coming out as gay. You talked about overcoming sex addiction. It was an incredibly powerful just set of stories. I mean... Really, I, mean, I hear compliments to this day about oh, that thank one. You. Thank um, you. And I'm really just honored and, and excited to have you back on and to talk, dive a little bit deeper into that and to talk about, you know, the shadow side of psychology is what you want to talk mm-hmm. about, right? The, the kind of darker side of people, what ways that people can get motivated or ways that people can get stuck uh, based on kind of unmet needs from childhood. Can you share a little bit with the listeners about what you mean by kind of the shadow side of, the, of psychology? It's very, sure. very alluring. You know, it's very... The, sh- the shadow side is a Jungian term. It's really the part of ourselves that we don't want to look at because it can scare the hell out of a lot of people. Uh, so the part of us that uh, may uh, have been victimized by other people, we need to also acknowledge there's a part of us that will victimize people. And for a lot of people, it's like, oh, God forbid, that's not me. It's a part of all of us. So I, I, that's what I look at. Uh, the part of the person who says they're very honest, I don't trust that person because I am really an honest guy, Mark, and I lie. If a cop stops me, I don't say, oh, sir, I know why you stopped me because I was speeding. I might say, officer, why are you stopping me? Well, it's my dark side. I'm lying at that point. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's the parts that we like disown, right? And, and don't want to integrate into our sense of self. Exactly. We want to kill that part of ourselves off. Yeah. And and th- usually it's not really dangerous, but I've had some, some clients that it's been truly dangerous when they've not acknowledged or taken ownership for their darkness. And that's what scares me as a clinician. Yeah. Do you have an example of that to kind of make it real? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I was hired to do uh, sexual harassment training and a whole bunch of organizational development for a hospital that I'm not gonna mention. And uh, the CEO of the hospital was a short, short man, about five foot one, and everybody was terrified of this man. But him and I got along really well because I know how to meet his narcissistic needs. So I would really soothe him a lot and stroke him a lot. This man would barge into therapy sessions to give it his advice. He was a CEO of a, comp- of a hospital. Wait, wait, into the other people's sessions? It, literally, he would barge into <laughs> people's sessions he had people do uh, swimming for therapeutic reasons where he would join them in the swimming pool. Totally inappropriate. Yeah. What? Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to give three examples of people he introduced me to. Now my language will be inappropriate. This was the language he used. So he walks up to this, to this uh, nurse. He goes, Rick, I want you to meet this male nurse. I said, Oh, okay. Cause no, Rick, he's a male nurse. Great. Okay. And he walks, he introduces me and he says, I'm going to use his language. Please understand this is not my language, his language. He goes, Rick, I'd like you to meet Stan. He's such a cute little faggot. Oof. 
And, and Stan's looking at me like, oh my God, here we go again. I said, excuse me? And he, he said it several times. And I said, Stan, what's your reaction to this? He goes, well, you know, Mr. So-and-so, you know how he can be. And I was so uncomfortable. And I'm walking and I'm just, I'm just like taking notes about this is the organizational development training I'm going to do. Then he introduces me to the director of food service. He goes, and again, I'm using his language. He goes, I want you to introduce you to, he's, he's Mexican. He's a very family-oriented man. And I thought he was really going to do something very acknowledging. And he goes, I'd like, I'd like you to meet my little spick here. And, and, and he goes, he is so family oriented. Everybody loves him. And again, the man was very kind and polite. And I was so uncomfortable. Then mm-hmm. finally, the last person, I, I actually cry whenever I tell this story. He's walking uh, to the nurse's unit off the elevator. And he says to his nurse, what are you doing here? You're a black woman and you're obese. It will disgust our patients and our other therapists. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm like dumbfounded. And she said, oh, Mr. So-and-so, it's such an honor to see you. And again, he is degrading her about her weight, about her being African-American. And he goes, okay, what do you think of her? Then I, then I took a step, I said, what do I think of her? I think she's an amazing woman. She's taking care of her family. She's put up with your abuse, which is not okay. He started laughing. He goes, oh, Rick, you're so endearing. Well, finally, I said, what's your reaction to him? I wanted her to blast him. And so finally, I met with all the employees, and we did training on preventing abuse with him. Eventually, to make a long story short, the hospital lost their license. He was thrown out. This was abuse based on his dark side that he couldn't acknowledge. He was bullied by his family and kids and it transferred over to work. So it's a long story, but it, it, it can happen through organizations too. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I know you didn't get to work with him individually, but if you were to take a guess, right, about where that's coming from, because I'm hearing two things. I mean, one, it's completely unacceptable. Totally. What Please he's saying. Yes, yes. Right. And also the, the employees, because of the power structure, are just like laughing about it. Right. Right. Like you said, everyone was like, oh, you know how he is, blah, blah, blah. Like he just, he's kind of a goofball. But really, I'd imagine it it, it hurts them, right? To have their boss call them like a racial slur or make fun of their body or or whatever. What do you think was going on for him? Because it sounds like he wasn't even aware that that wasn't appropriate. Let me get back to what happened, then I'll tell you about what I think it's about, Mark. Great question. I met with the group, I I, I put them in groups. We had 12, 12 people in the group, and I was so humbled. I asked them, why do they put up with it? And they all answered the same. Rick, this is our job. We have families to feed. We put up with abuse because they pay well. And it's hard to get a job in a, in a psych hospital like this, etc. So I, it was so humbling. So what happened to him? He was shamed. He was ridiculed. Mm-hmm. He was actually thrown out of college for a while. And his whole thing was about survival and believing that he needed to be better than other people. So the, the abuse just followed him the rest of his life. And eventually, actually, eventually his son was the vice president of the organization. They were committed of uh, Medicare fraud. His son committed suicide. Oh, wow. So it, it really, you know, when we look at organizations, it, it, it permeated throughout the entire organization. Mm-hmm. So very sad ending. Yeah, the very sad ending. And there's like a real sickness in that organization, it sounds yes, like. exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. 
And I mean, the reason I'm sharing this story is this is what happens when we don't acknowledge our dark side. Mm-hmm. We may all, all have an abusive part of us, but it's what we do with it and to take ownership and not act it out. That's the important part. Right. Because, you know, traveling what you're saying, in order for him to really acknowledge that, that would mean truly feeling all that pain he felt as a kid, right? And the humiliation he must have felt and the fear and all that instead of projecting it out into the world around him. And it's not an excuse for sure, right. but it is an explanation. It is. And it's, it's again, very sad. Just it, it, everything's sad about it as far as I'm concerned. Hospital doesn't exist anymore. People were hurt. People lost their jobs. Son committed suicide. Very sad all around. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of the phrase like, you know, hurt people hurt people. Yes. And there's something really there for, I mean, a lot of people that, that I work with too, that it's just, it's that, I mean, the word is grandiosity, right? It's this level of grandiosity, which I, I have, right, too, of feeling not enough, feeling shame, feeling that, you know, feeling lonely, and then having that flip of being like, oh, well, it's not, I'm not the problem. Everyone else is the problem, right? It's not that I'm not good enough, it's that the world isn't good enough for me. And that switch can happen so quickly for individuals. And I think taken to the extreme, like the, in the story that you told me, it can become incredibly abusive, right? Because to keep that story up, you have to be constantly putting down the world, right? And constantly trying to elevate yourself to that next level to, to separate, to separate from reality. You know, I had a, a man in my, my men's group that was highly abusive. And a lot of therapists tried to get him to look at the impact and, and all these traditional type, type things the group wanted to throw them out. And I said, group, I'd like to do something for eight weeks in a row. And if after eight weeks in a row, there's no change, we'll look at it. I would like you to kill him with kindness. Now, this was an absolute son of a bitch. Mm-hmm. I, I, and I could not stand this guy. Yet for eight or 10 weeks, we showered him with love and kindness. Where eventually after four weeks, he started bawling, just bawling because what he he had never gotten the love that he was craving and so rather than deal with the emptiness the deprivation he would push people away first and it, it changed his life and it, the group absolutely loves him now and he, he doesn't need the abusive part to protect them you know the abusive part serves a purpose unfortunately right yeah it's a you know um <laughs> you can't fire me i quit thing right of like needing to throw the first punch from a place of fear right having your back up against the wall and not even knowing how to take in that love when it does appear. Yeah. yeah. And again, we could say he was afraid of intimacy. He was just afraid of, uh, of being touched in an intimate way. People are terrified of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I find in my groups, my therapy, my personal life, you know, I, I crave being validated, held, loved, told I'm good enough, all those wonderful things. Yeah. How do you get those needs met in your life? Uh, I, choose people in my life that can meet those needs. I surround my people, p- people that I can give with, give back that love to for my family and my friends. I'm an amazing husband that I didn't feel I deserved somebody like him and uh, done my own intense work over the years to help create that, create him in my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's really inspiring, right. To take ownership for those needs because I think in our culture, right. And luckily, you know, in Jewish culture, I think it's a little bit different. But when I talk a lot of like white culture, a lot of my clients are in that. They think it's like selfish, right? Mm-hmm. Self, the word selfish comes up a lot. 
to like have needs or to want validation or it's like greedy or it's like um, weak. You know, there's a, there's a lot of messages around even just vocalizing what you just did, what you did with a, you know, essentially a straight face of like, yeah, I need people to tell me that I'm good. I need people to love me. I need people to, you know, give me attention and, and hold me. Like those are all normal human needs, but so much of that gets repressed, I think, in people, right? There, there, there's a lot of shame around that. Well, there's also, it's been my own development. I, I shared in the um, initial podcast I was in that uh, my first lover died when I was young and my mom died when I was young and I felt I was supposed to be punished for being gay. So I dated women heavily. I uh, got engaged to a, a woman who was borderline personality disorder that I knew after the, the second or third date. And I felt I was supposed to be punished. Now, I'm not blaming her. I helped set this up. But I'll never forget our third date. She was looking at this vase that uh, a student of mine made. I'll never forget this. And it was an ugly vase, but it, was, it, it had <laughs> sentimental value to me. A student made it that, that I, I helped out with some things. And she goes, Rick, what is this? I said, oh, it's a vase a student of mine made. She goes, well, what's more important, me or the vase? And I said, this is our third date. What are you talking about? She goes, well, no, Rick, what's more important, me or the vase? And I said, I don't, I don't know. I think the vase, I don't know. I, I answered like that. I was 21 years old. She threw the vase down and broke it. And I told myself, <sighs> this, this is the woman for me. This is the one. <laughs> this is the one. This is my future wife. Because in my mind, and again, I'm not blaming her. I helped set this up. In my mind, I was supposed to be punished because I didn't deserve to be an openly gay male where my needs are met. Mm-hmm. So I stayed married woman to, to this woman 18 years to protect my kids. And then uh, when I came out, I developed some wonderful relationships that I feel very loved and taken care of by. Yeah, so, so that's a good example of dark side there too, right? Of feeling the desire to be punished. Yes. Or feeling like, yeah, those that not, I guess being shamed and wanting to be hurt, right? Yeah, I, so it's, it's fascinating. Um, when I first started dating my ex-wife, and again, this is on me, I had panic attacks because I knew I was a gay man mm-hmm. dating borderline. And I had full-blown panic attacks. And the way my panic attack would get acted out, I would leave, need to go to the bathroom in a restaurant and start vomiting. Well, first time I had a panic attack, my ex-wife started yelling at me because she felt I was embarrassing her. Well, of course, then what happens is the panic attack gets worse. So I learned that it's not okay to be honest, to share my feelings, because I'll be shamed for it, which will lead to panic. Mm-hmm. Not a good feeling. So this, this is fascinating to me, because the way you're, you're telling the story is that, like, you were aware the whole time. Totally. Totally. Okay. So yeah, can you, totally can aware. You, yeah, can you say more about that? I mean, that's, I, I, that's because, crazy. Because, I, because what's on, I betrayed my ex-wife. I knew I was a gay man getting married. And so I, I felt that whatever she, the way she wanted to treat me, I deserved because I betrayed her. I wasn't honest with the man I was. And right. that's not me. Did you like, so, in your mind, you like conned her or lied to her or tricked her yeah, or something? Yeah, yeah. I, I played the role of being a straight man. Yeah. And and I was, you know, I'd like to tell, you know, well, I was bisexual, but I wasn't. I was a gay man closeted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that justified all the awful any, situations. Any and anything, justified anything. Any punishment I got, I deserved. Now, I no longer believe that. But there was so much of my mindset, my mantra for many years. And these days, I tolerate no abuse. Zero. Zip. Will not t- I love healthy confrontation. I, I tolerate zero abuse. 
Yeah. So in your in your mind, you would just say like, I deserve this or this is what I get or something along those lines. I got this coming. I've had the, I got this coming. I got this coming. Yeah. And it was a sick form of arousal, unfortunately, not sexual arousal, but emotional arousal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it just, it just makes me think of how hellacious that must be, right? And how people can live in these types of hells of, of their own creation of like, this is, and, and know about it, right? Know about it. And in some ways choose it. I mean, I know you had to do a bunch of work to probably overcome the you know re- resistance to it, but just, yeah, like this is what my life is going to be. You know, my life is going to be a, attached to this awful woman, this borderline woman. And, you know, my fa- the famous scene in Goodwill Hunting, It's Not Your Fault. Mm-hmm. I cannot tell you the number of times I replayed that scene in my head and told myself, Rick, it's not your fault. It's yeah. not your fault. Yeah, you really need to hear that. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I did. Yeah, that's, that's powerful. I think there's so many people that need to hear that, right? The, the shame, oh, shame is so crazy pervasive. It keeps a lot of people stuck. It does. It kept me stuck for quite a long time. Right? Yeah. Well, we're going to move into a commercial break here. I really appreciate you sharing that. On the other side, we'll talk more about shame. I'll talk about some of my dark side things, especially around my uh, marijuana addiction. That's a, that's a big sure. one for sure. me. Um, and hopefully people are listening. If you have a dark side, which everyone does, if you have a shadow side, which everybody does, my hope is that this conversation can help to dispel some of that shame so you can talk about it right? Whether it be with a therapist or someone you love or a friend, doesn't matter, right? But just starting to put some light on these other parts of you. But Mark, it's got to be with someone they trust because one of the worst things is sharing the shame and then being shamed for it. True. Yeah. Don't just, don't just tell anybody. Tell, um, tell somebody who's safe and then that you trust. Oh. That's, a, that's a good suggestion. Yeah. All right. So moving to commercial break and we'll catch you on the other side. In Mark's work with high performers and business owners, it is becoming increasingly clear to him that their biggest obstacle to success is themselves. They are experts in their field, but are dragged down by their anxiety, poor time management, inability to focus, or self-sabotage. His role is to help you overcome these emotional and organizational issues so that you can truly excel in your business and your personal life. One of the most common hurdles that he sees is perfectionism, a crippling anxiety around performance. It's a fear of not being good enough, being publicly embarrassed, or of disappointing others. These fears paralyze brilliant people and bring them to their knees. This course will help you to break free from this mental prison and have more agency in your world. In this online course, we will break down the prison of perfectionism so that you can break out of it. For more information and to sign up, visit mark-azulay.teachable.com. That's mark, M-A-R-C-Azulay, A-Z-O-U-L-A-Y, dot teachable.com. You are listening to From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay. To reach the show today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to podcast at mark-azoulay.com. Now, back to From the Ashes. Welcome back. I'm sitting here with Rick Tivers, and we're talking about 
the dark side of the psychology or the shadow side of a person, which is, you know, the parts of us that we disown, that we don't want to, to accept, you know? Um, and I was thinking over the break about my, you know, marijuana addiction primarily and drug addiction, I think in general, but weed addiction, there's a couple shadow parts that I wanted to share. Um, I'll share the, the service level one and then the deeper one. So the service level one for me was that uh, weed in particular kept me small. You know, really? it, it kept me in a place of where I was as a kid of feeling shut down, of feeling afraid. Um, I thought it was a thing of soothing, but really it was like a cocoon. And, and the, the big example that I share with people is that when I was high, I wouldn't answer the phone, right? Because I just had this like level of paranoia, especially with someone oh. that, that I didn't know. Because I didn't want them to know I was high, right? I didn't, I didn't want to like say something dumb or giggle or whatever, right? So, you know, I was high all the time. So I, I didn't like, I didn't really, I didn't answer the phone. I didn't do job interviews. I didn't talk to new people. I specifically didn't talk to women. Like I didn't go out of my comfort zone because I was always nervous that someone would know that I was high. And, you know, couple that with like playing too many video games, eating, you know, high carbohydrate food. Like I was just building and building a building more of a circle and more of like a, like a cocoon. Um, and it was that realization that, that marijuana was keeping me small because when I was high, I wasn't like you, like I wasn't aware of it until I went to therapy. Cause when I was baked out of my mind, I thought I was like traveling the multiverse, right? Like I was like having these like incredible ideas. I was like very artistic actually, right? I was drawing a bunch. I was like writing down all these theories. Like I, I thought I was like expanding my mind, right? When in reality, I was continuously shutting it down, creating more and more layers between myself and what was actually happening. What, what I find fascinating, Mark, uh, pot is not one of my addictions, um, but the way you're talking, the way I have my menage a trois with Ben and Jerry and myself, mm-hmm. okay, uh, the same thing. Like when I'm, when I'm in a zone of having Ben and Jerry's by myself, it's as if I'm having a masturbatory experience. I don't want anybody to watch me. I will not answer my text. It's almost like, oh, somebody's catching me. I, I'm acting out. You know, in, it, years ago, if I was acting out, it's some kind of sexual acting out. These days, if I tell my husband, oh, I'm acting out, I'll be honest with him. Okay, Rick, what are you eating? Right. And, uh, <laughs> what flavor did you get? Exactly. And, but it, it, but it's, a, it's a very soothing, yet sometimes lonely experience because mm-hmm. I don't want anybody interacting with me at that point. It would feel intrusive. I don't know if that makes sense to you, given, given what you're talking about. Yeah, it, it does. I mean, I think I still do that. I do that through food now, for sure. I think I do that with like needing to take space. And it's, I'm curious your, your thoughts on this, right? Like how much space is appropriate, which is obviously there's not a, there's not an answer for that, right? But I think for me, at least, there's a fine line between taking like a healthy amount of space and going in the cocoon, right? Just like hiding, you know, yeah. sucking into the hermit crab shell. For, for, for me, there's a fine line. It's associated with my work. When I'm done with work, I really need to detach. Um, by Thursday night, my, my nephew, who I love dearly, called me. He wanted to talk about something. I was pissed that he called. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to talk to him. And I love the guy dearly. And so I talked to him Friday. It worked out fine. But I felt so intruded upon. It's like somebody else wants, wants my tit. I, I, and I, want to, I don't want to give anymore. Now, we're talking about dark side my appropriate polite side says, well, of course, he's your nephew. You should give to him. My dark side says, get away. And I get, so th- th- that's a little bit of the darkness too. And then oh, of yeah. Course, Friday, absolutely. Did. yeah, absolutely. And I think it's that trying to negotiate 
I mean, hopefully you're giving more than you're pushing away, but I think it's okay to push away sometimes too, yes. right? Yes. Um, or especially with a partner or a loved one. I mean, I, I go through this with my girlfriend now is that I, and it's just work for me that, you know, in some ways you've helped me do too, of acknowledging when I need space. I try to communicate through it, right? So like, I'll say, hey, I'm really tired. I can't, you know, chat on the phone right now, right? Whereas in the past, I would just not respond, right? And then that, that's leaving her with the questions of like, did I piss him off? Is something wrong? Is he mad at me? You know, did whatever X, Y, and Z spins her into a tailspin, right? Well, it's, it's a form of aband- abandonment too. And when I, when I look at couples, I'm, I'm fascinated. This is with my husband and myself and all couples I know. One person will be afraid of being abandoned. The other person will be afraid of being intruded upon. For sure, for it's sure. And, and mine is more about abandonment. When my husband needs space, I need more connection. I'm more like your husband. Yeah, yeah oh, like, exactly, exactly, yeah. yeah. I'm afraid of being like consumed in a relationship, right? Like, and that was the past of, you know, working with my family and then also not working, being raised by my family and being in relationship with people that were maybe on the borderline spectrum is this idea of like, I would date somebody and then they would destroy my life, right? And more accurately, to kind of mirror your story, like I would allow them to destroy my life. Exactly. Right. I would destroy my life and using them as an excuse, using them as like a catalyst. But ultimately, I was the one that was, you know, losing sleep and doing like the phone calls till 4 a.m. in the morning and, you know, chasing after them when they left and, you know, maybe eating too much or drinking too much or whatever it was, you know, not having a schedule and being like, I'll be available whenever. And I really love you, baby. And like all the like drama and, and intensity and, you know, skipping the gym and, you know, whatever, right? Canceling appointments. I mean, all that shit, right? All the kind of like codependency stuff. I was allowing my, my boundaries to be intruded upon um, and allowing myself to be consumed to the point where I got, you know, I'm, I'm afraid of that, right? I'm afraid of, of being consumed um, by a woman, particularly in a relationship. Yeah, well, there's a distorted mindset. If you love me, you'll be, you'll be there for me 24-7. Dude, for sure. I've seen people that literally told me that. And it's, it's terrifying. It was terrifying. Like yeah. I've did, I dated someone that, that she said, oh, you know, same thing. Like, if you love somebody, you want to talk with them all the time. And I was like, I mean, luckily this was, this was like a year ago. Uh, I probably told you about this person, but this was about a year ago. And I was like, no, you don't. But if, that, if, someone, had, <laughs> if someone had told me that like three years ago, I would have been like almost gaslit. I'd be like, oh, do I? Are you supposed to like them all the time? Like, is there something wrong with me that I don't want to talk to her all the time? Like it would really, even something that simple and clearly toxic would like throw me for a loop. I, I don't think I would know how to respond to that. I'll start to doubt myself. You know, I, be, I believe in love languages, but I don't want to go there right now. But, but w- one gift I give to my husband and he says it all, hey, hon, go out by yourself tonight. Or, or, or take take a couple of those, we're, we're not together. And I, I I would be like terrified of saying that in the past. Oh, Rick, thank you. That's such a nice gift. Thank you. And he'll do the opposite. Rick, let's connect on this. We'll do this, this special for us. And, you know, it's meeting each other's needs and, and getting out your own comfort zone sometime. So I think it's great. I think it's wonderful. Yeah, it's really like uh, reciprocal, it sounds like, you know. Um Here's one. I, I I guarantee you have a story for this because I hear okay. this with my organizational okay. consultation clients all the time, right? So a lot of leaders, and I can say I was guilty to this to some extent as well. A lot of leaders become leaders, right? Because either they want the attention and acclaim they didn't get as a child, or they're trying to recreate their family in their organization, 
or they think this is the one that I had, that if I lead, the people won't leave me because I'm the leader, right? Yeah. You don't leave the leader. Um, I'm curious your, your thoughts on that. If you see that in the organizational development work that you do around the darker sides that get people, that motivate people to become leaders, right? That get them into these like CEO manager positions. I'd like to take this on a much more personal basis, Mark, actually, much Love more it. personal. And as I think about this, it brings up uh, some sadness in me. My, my son, Jordan, worked in my practice. And uh, we did group together and our styles were vastly different. And just our philosophies about a lot of therapeutic. And I was his mentor for many years, being his dad. And he knew me as a therapist for many years, of course. And when he said, hey, dad, I think I want to be on my own and leave the practice. It was most bittersweet experience. On one hand, Jordan, I'm so proud of you. Go, I'll refer to you. I'll, I'll, I'll you know, help you whatever way. On the flip side is you're leaving me, yeah. but I'm your dad. How could you do that? And I fully support him doing it, but it was so bittersweet. So I, I think in that respect, you know, I, I was a leader of had my own practice because of that. And uh, it can be painful. Yeah, to create a place for your to connect with your son, right? Like a reason yeah. to connect regularly with your son. Yes, yes. Yeah. And we had this whole thing in group. He wouldn't call me dad. He had to call me Rick, which I understood. And the group members had a higher time with it at first, but it, it, it made sense with our dynamics. But that's, a, that's another story. <laughs> did they want you to call, do you want him to call you dad? I mean, what's, what's it, the... It's like, or, I mean, did, yeah. did you want that? I would have liked it, but I understood why he would call me Rick. And I, I supported that, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's such like a playing out of the childhood dynamics because that, again, back to shadow side, I mean, that happens with parents all the time, right? Of their own abandonment wound getting triggered and not wanting their kid to to leave, right? To leave yeah. to maybe go to college or to get a job or, or to move away. Um, and I think it when it comes out, I mean, I think about some of the parents that I've worked with is like, they will in some ways subtly, sometimes even not so subtly, sabotage their kid. Right, so that the kid doesn't leave the home, so that the kid does yeah. stay dependent, that they stay attached. I, I, I'm doing some family therapy uh, right now, and uh, this kid it was accepted to Princeton, and uh, dad died a couple of years ago. He's been surrogate husband, and the mother said, "I'm so proud to go to Princeton, but you know I'll probably be suicidal when when you leave." And she started joking no. about it, it and the kid joke. That's not a joke. He kids became very frantic because he, he has been a surrogate husband for the last four or five years. Mm-hmm. And so we have to deal with the reality and him moving along in it, but it's not funny. It really isn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. It's that, it's that bond and it's that, you know, codependency over commitment where they get so enmeshed. And it's, I, I think that fear of abandonment is so big. I think it's such a, a shadow motivator because it keeps people clinging to situations that aren't healthy for them. Right, because they don't want to be alone, and they don't, and they don't want to be in a new situation. It's like even you know, I do long-term therapy, so I've had clients who have seen me 30, 35 years, and when people hear that, they freak out. And uh, I have this one couple who has seen me fifteen years, literally since they got married, and they see me three times a year, just for. And I, I say, why do you guys see Rick? We want we want the attachment, just in case we know you're here, and it's wonderful. And three times a year, I see is very healthy for that couple. Yeah, that's that's smart. That's smart, right? Is to kind of keep that bond there. So, what are some other shadow motivators that you see in in the work that you do? So, a, a lot of people have their shadow come out of a power and control over other people, uh, abusive uh, ways of getting validated, 
um, some of the most shadow people I see are salespeople that not about just making the sale, but competing with each other and sabotaging each other. I, I cannot tell you no more organizations I get called in where you think salespeople will be on the same page. Not necessarily. It's who's going to be the top dog, who's going to be number one, and what can I do to make sure I am not, not, my, not my peer. I think it's really ugly sometimes. And I'm talking about in professional sales organizations. I've seen that all the time. Yeah. I mean, especially because, I mean, organizations also create games, right? Where if you are the top performer, you get a bonus or you get like a vacation or you get whatever, right? So it's incentivized to have that kind of cutthroat mentality. For sure. For sure. Mark, what, what, what have been some of your challenges in organizations? What else do you see if I can ask? I think the main thing is just people that, yeah, leaders that are really lonely, that are unbelievably lonely. And that use their um, employees or their board as emotional coping. I think that's the biggest thing I've seen. Is, it's just like a lack of boundaries, you know. Um, and I think on the you know maybe more mild side, I've worked with people that you know shit talk during work or gossip or you know I try to create friends out of coworkers, right? Like invite people over to their home and, and really merge with that. Um, which I think at some level is, is okay if it's monitored. If it's monitored. Um, and the other stream, I've worked with people that have had affairs with people that they've worked with, right? Or, you know, the secretary or whatever it is, right? Like a co-founder. I work with a lot of startups. And if there's a, you know, male-female dynamic, oftentimes those people are sleeping together, you know? And that's a disaster, right? It, yes. it's, I've, I've never seen it work out well. And I've worked with a, a, a fair amount of them at this point. Um, because there's something about just like, you know, just going through the startup experience or the leadership experience or the business experience with somebody else, but it's someone that you're attracted to. And it, it, it's like a trial by fire, you know, well, and there's a, there's trauma bonding that happens there. And before you know it, you're in a relationship with this person because you feel like they're the only person that understands you because you're a workaholic and they're a workaholic and your whole life is the same company. And it's like, you've started a family together, but that's not real, right? No, that's not, not real. I do a process called the hot seat in, in, in the companies I consult with. And one of the questions I ask in the hot seat, what does this person do for their free time? Because I want to see diagnostically how much do people know each other? Some people don't know each other at all in business. Other people know each other appropriately. Other people know the sexual positions they had over the weekend mm -hmm. where there's no boundaries. So part of it, I do that for diagnostic. How well are boundaries respected and looked at within the organization? Because it can get very dysfunctional, of course. Yeah, very dysfunctional. And I think it comes... Again, from that shadow motivator of loneliness, which I think a lot of leaders, I mean, something that I talk about a lot is just how lonely leadership is. Yes. Because to do it properly, you do have to have those boundaries with people. But also, especially if you're a startup person, you have to give all your time. So it's like, where do you find your connection? And I work with a lot of guys and they're like, you know, mid to late 30s, early 40s that are very wealthy and very successful, but are awful in a relationship that don't have friends. I mean, I mean, forget about a partner, but like don't even have friends. Don't know, know how to ha have friendships either. Don't have, have friendships. Don't have friendships without any being involved, right? Like bodies are starting to fall apart, right? They're like, you know, have something that's been undiagnosed for a long time. Maybe they're like not exercising or working out, like very overweight or just kind of no no mobility. I mean, I, I just see it all the time. So it's funny that in, the, in our culture, we call that successful, but it's not successful. I mean, maybe you're wealthy, but like you're not successful, right? There's a lot of other things that are being sacrificed yeah. during I run, I run these management leadership groups with different leaders. And the, the number one reason that people want to get together is so they feel seen and heard by their peers. Mm -hmm. Literally. Right. right. Seen they, they, and they, heard by their peers. They want to know that they're not alone and they want to know that people actually 
you know, understand and respect the work that, that they've done and what they give to the company organization. Exactly. We're going to move into our final commercial break here. Uh, when we get back, I want to talk about, you know, some tactics of how to know if you're being motivated by the shadow, right? If you're, if you're listening and this is something that you're like, oh, wait, is, are my intentions totally pure? To talk a little bit about that directly to the listeners. Um, so for those, those of you listening out here, if you find this helpful, uh, please like us on social media, share it, do all the social stuff. It really does help. Um, this podcast is actually starting to pick up a lot of steam, which I'm really excited about, thanks to listeners like yourself. So the more you can get this out there, the more beneficial it can be to other people. So tune in, hang on, and we'll catch you on the other side. Thank you, Mark. In Mark's work with high performers and business owners, it is becoming increasingly clear to him that their biggest obstacle to success is themselves. They are experts in their field, but are dragged down by their anxiety, poor time management, inability to focus, or self-sabotage. His role is to help you overcome these emotional and organizational issues so that you can truly excel in your business and your personal life. One of the most common hurdles that he sees is perfectionism, a crippling anxiety around performance. It's a fear of not being good enough, being publicly embarrassed, or of disappointing others. These fears paralyze brilliant people and bring them to their knees. This course will help you to break free from this mental prison and have more agency in your world. In this online course, we will break down the prison of perfectionism so that you can break out of it. For more information and to sign up, visit mark-azulay.teachable.com. That's mark, M-A-R-C-Azulay, A-Z-O-U-L-A-Y.teachable.com. You are listening to From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay. To reach the show today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to podcast at mark-azoulay.com. Now, back to From the Ashes. So I'm sitting here with Rick Tivers and we're talking about the shadow side of psychology. And I think, you know, because of the work we do, our organ- we uh, went towards organizational development, towards leadership. And I got to imagine, at least I hope, right? I hope this podcast is reaching people. And there's people listening that are like, oh my God, like, am I motivated by the shadow side? Like, am I, is there something that I'm acting out? Because for most people, and I think, Rick, maybe you're the, the exception, but for most people, you, they're not aware of these shadow motivators, right? You need to take some level of introspection. You need to take some level of mirroring by a group or by a, a coach or a therapist or whatever it is um, to start to become aware of this. A lot of stuff is unconscious, right? A lot of stuff is just, it just it's happening. And mm-hmm. you think it's normal because that's how you were raised. So it's normal for you, but it may not be normal or healthy in kind of the broad uh, scheme of things. So Rick, I'm wondering if you could talk to the people that are listening and maybe thinking about this, how, how could they know? How would they know that there's something else going on? So an indicator I look at with our shadow, how much of your life is a secret? And if, if your life is constantly a secret, there's some shadow parts of you that you may be uncomfortable with. For me, my homosexuality, my gay side, was a huge secret because I had tremendous shame. It was my dark side. So I would hook up with guys and when I'd hook up with guys, I'd have shame about it. I would be unconscious. It was just part of my need for validation, et cetera. Uh, 
is really living consciously. But, but so but, uh, w- one thing that concerns me, Mark, when we talk about our dark side, we have to have compassion about it as opposed to, oh, you're such an asshole or you're so mean or you're so, so sadistic. Have compassion for that part of you that may have led your life that you don't want to have it lead your life anymore unconsciously, unconsciously. Yeah, I think both those are great. I mean, I think on the compassion piece, a lot of the shadow stuff comes from hurt. Yes. Right. It comes from hurt. It comes from unmet needs, comes from uh, protection, right? From someone else that also has a shadow side, you know? Um, so I hope that people listening can, yeah, the shadow side isn't bad or, or evil, but it, it might not be appropriate, right? And it also might be something that's happening that's kind of like a, a reaction, right? Like, like a lashing out reaction rather than something that you have control over. Let me give another example. This happened two weeks ago. A client of mine, uh, she's 50. Her mother is dying of cancer. She's about 80. And she started a session because, Rick, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I wish she would die already. So she's out of her pain. So so I don't have to have this burden of going to her, to her and deal with hospice. I feel guilty, but I wish she would die. So what do you think is an appropriate response? As to, a... To, yeah, as a therapist, because a lot of people would think, how could you think that? That's your mother. That's terrible. Oh, yeah. No, that's the worst response. Look, I mean, I, I worked in hospice as my first job, oh. and I heard that. Really? I heard that exact thing. And saying like, yeah, tell me more about that. Or like just saying like, yeah, I understand that was the most, by far. I mean, I didn't know how to be a therapist, but just validating that feeling was the most healing thing that I did. And right. it's, it's I, unbelievably common for caregivers to feel what, that way. What I said to her was first, thank you for telling me that. Mm-hmm. I said, I think you've got far more patience than me. Given what you've been dealing with, I wish that she would have gone probably say months ago, but that's my dark side. She burst into tears. Thank you so much for saying yeah. that, Rick. I felt so guilty. I said, it's human nature. Okay. And so part of what we're, we're doing is validating that dark side that we all have, as opposed to what's wrong with you. Right. You shouldn't feel that way. Right. Yeah. And I wonder, I don't wonder, I mean, I got some ideas of where that comes from. I think it comes from like Christian and Catholic roots. I think it comes, I think it's, you know, intensified by the social media stuff that's happening where you see everyone's like best highlight reels, but this, this like shame and this like concept of, of evil in particular, I think is really, it's really interesting to me, right. That there are parts that are just like, are damned, right. That needs to just be like exercised. It really gets to, I think, to like religious Roots. Well, I have an example that may trigger some some of our listeners here. I have a pedophile I've been treating once or twice a week for about 12 years. Okay. He I have diagnosed him as a pedophile. He has never, ever acted out. Ever. His fantasies, though, are about children. Okay. He is not allowed to watch porn. He has done nothing inappropriate, but he sees me to deal with this as, as a check. And one of my clients heard, he goes, Rick, how could you even treat this man? How could, I said, first of all, I actually have love and tenderness for this man because he's protecting himself and society from hurting anybody. 100%. And, yeah. and, and, and he, he is brutally asking me about his fantasy, all this stuff, which is fine. I encourage it. He has never acted out. But for a lot of people, as soon as they hear his diagnosis, they want to rip him to shreds. And I, I have I have one client who said, I can't see you anymore. The mere fact you even treated Peter. Okay. So th- th- that's taken me such 
effort to not lash at people because we're so judgmental and quick to judge. And again, please understand, and I'm feeling protective of him and myself. He's never acted out. Please hear that loud and clear. Oh, for sure, right? I mean, that means that the treatment's working, yes. right? Like, like that's why he should be in treatment, just like you said, to protect himself, to protect the children, his community, to protect the, you know, his the nation, whatever, right? Like, exactly. The work exactly. you're doing with him is effective because exactly. he hasn't done anything. Exactly, and and there have been times he has called me, reached out, and, and as a protective mechanism. When his fantasy became too strong, which fine, that's what I'm here for. That he goes to SA, Sex Addicts Anonymous, is another part of his protection, which is great. Right. And I imagine, I mean, just making assumptions that he probably has sexual abuse in his history, or they're like the, the pedophilia, even though it's, you know, deplorable in some ways and very dangerous, makes sense probably for this individual, right? Well, like it's not like yes. a random thing. Didn't happen overnight. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So I wonder, just you, were you always that curious and, and accepting and compassionate or something that you had to learn or like, what's your journey with that? Because I can imagine, I mean, I think I would have difficulty sitting across from a pedophile, right? I mean, I think I could do it professionally, but I, I think it would, I'd have to go supervision about it, let me put it that way, right? I, I would yeah. need more support to, to do that. How did you get to the point where you because could Because I felt person? so defective within my own sexuality, mm-hmm. I felt very comfortable in other people's perceived effectiveness. I'm not saying they're defective in, in, in how they feel about their defectiveness. I felt so uncomfortable, even my fetishes, you know, I, I, when I, I like hair on a man, okay? I used to feel guilt about that. You know, we each of our own turn-ons and turn-offs, things like that. I no longer feel guilty about any of my fetishes, things like that. But yeah, it would, it would be a lot of guilt and shame. Yeah, so, so you know something about that self-hatred or about that, uh, like, about being there, yeah. Yes. Yes, yeah. very much so. I used to pray to God every night, two things. God, stop me from being gay and please make me thin. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm very serious, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, and I think that's, I mean, that's very powerful, right, that you can go there. And I think it just highlights something that just comes up on the show a lot of just, you know, going there yourself through personal work can let you be more accessible to others, right, and be more available. Yeah, a therapist that's, that, that, doesn't acknowledge any of your darkness, I would feel so uncomfortable with. And I would just, I would just, I wouldn't trust. Oh, me neither. I think that that's like a true sociopath, yeah. right? And I don't use that word lightly. Like, I think it's someone that would just be lying and manipulating and cut off from the world, right? To just like smile and nod and do the role. I mean, it's even the face I'm making, listeners can't see it, but just like wearing like this mask all the time of like, I'm fine. Everything's fine. Don't worry about me. Tell me more about your evil part right like that's just uh yeah, me if, I, if any of our listeners do therapy please make sure your therapist is either in or has been in therapy and that scares the hell out of me when i, I had one uh a colleague I said have you, you know have you been in therapy oh no i haven't needed it oh my god really <laughs> what does that mean that's yeah. terrifying for sure. I mean, I, I agree wholeheartedly. I mean, the same, I do the same advice to people, you know, don't join a group with your group leader is not in a group. Don't like go to therapy. Your therapy doesn't have a therapist. The same thing. Like you got to practice what you preach or else you can get really unhinged pretty, pretty quickly there. Yeah. And then we act out our own stuff on our clients. That's not fair to our clients. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to look back around to what you said earlier about secrets. Isn't it? That's really interesting. Yeah. And it made me associate, I went to this, um, program Naropa um, in for grad school, right? Three-year program. And a big part of this program was alternative schools, a Buddhist university. 
and we had to write papers on ourselves, right? We didn't we, like, yeah. I didn't learn a lot about psychology, to be honest. Like, I mean, I learned a lot in undergrad, you know, I went to Carnegie Mellon, did neuroscience and I, okay. I read a bunch of books and shit, right? But like in grad school, did not learn a lot about psychology. Wow, okay. But I had really intense personal work where we would have to like do PowerPoints and art projects and wow. speeches about ourselves and about yeah. like, our shadow side and all the worst part of ourselves and all the most shameful and painful parts of ourselves. And that transformed me, right? Doing wow. that, doing podcasts like this and other ones, quite frankly, presenting um, the way that I speak, I had, I had to burn secrets out of my brain, right? I had to put everything on the table. And, and I, even though Naropa has its, its things, that could be another future episode. I am eternally grateful for it freeing me from secrets wow. because as a child, I used to, lie, right? Lie, exaggerate, omit all of it, right? I used to like warp reality with my words as much as possible because I was so insecure and I wasn't able to like be present and, and be honest. And, and Europa really helped me to just say what was, what was true. And that's, and that's a superpower. So I want to say for people listening, you know, out there, the more brutally honest you can be and authentically honest you can be with, again, safe people, it's, it's a life changer because I, I remember what it was like to live with secrets and I know, Rick, you've lived with, yeah. you know, I think bigger ones in some ways, right? And that's just, it, it, it's hell. I mean, it, it truly is hell. Yeah, it's, you know, I, I was a closeted man for many years and I hated it. I just, that, that's why I'm so authentic in my, in my life these days. And it, it's my mantra just about being honest. Mm -hmm. uh, and honest doesn't mean being overly confrontive. It's just, this is my truth. Yeah, and it's weird because I thought, and this is part of my upbringing, I think, that if I was honest, people wouldn't like me. In fact, they wouldn't love me, right? Like if they knew the real me, they would leave. Or if they knew the real me, they would hit me or they would get mad at me or they would reject me in some form or another. And it was only through doing particularly group work through Naropa because I think it's, for me, I, I didn't trust therapists either, right? I'd like, my therapist could love me all he wanted. And I was like, nah, I don't buy it. Like you're a professional, I'm paying you to do this. Like there was some level of like, mistrust when I was early in therapy, but being in group was very helpful because I, I could hear from other people and my other classmates, like I trusted them more when I would share something that I was very ashamed of. And actually they got closer to me. Like that was so mind blowing sure. to me to be like, you, you want to know more about this thing. You want to know more about this thing that I just like hate, like truly hate about myself. Wow. You're interested in that. That was just, I mean, unbelievably healing. You clearly you've done a lot of work on yourself. A lot. Yeah, I don't know. Things. Have you had those? You must have had those experiences, right? Oh, of course. Of yeah. course. I, you know, from, I'll never forget the very first group I came out as a gay man. It was, yeah. a, it was a men's retreat. And the men, I can still remember this day, were loving, kind, supportive. Because I had in my head, I was going to get banned from the group. Mm -hmm. They were going to shame me. All this distortion in my head. Yeah, and I'm constantly surprised with how people respond to authenticity. Yeah, yeah. And that's uh, distortions is a good word. It's something that I think has been a gift. I'm curious your thoughts on this. Like a gift of me doing this job in some ways of realizing how distorted people can be in a way, right? Like how different people actually think and how different people see the world. Like it's unbelievably different. Yeah. And I think, you know, in my 
for my show is that I can want to project my own views onto other people and be like, oh, like I wouldn't make this decision. Like, why are you doing it? But doing this work has made me really listen and be curious and just be like, whoa, like I see how you got there. Again, it's not how I would get there, but like your brain is really different than mine. And that's just been, it continues to be really mind blowing. I love people putting people together. The brains are different. I have one of my, my men's group, I've got three, it's fascinating, three engineers and a couple of graphic designers and artists. And <laughs> Real, the, really different. It, 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 and they get along great. And there's tremendous differences, mm-hmm. tremendous differences. But I want to talk about just real quickly, secrets and curiosity. I want people to be more curious about themselves than anybody else. Because it, when we talk about being curious about somebody else, we're really projecting a curiosity within ourselves about us. Mm-hmm. So I think that it's got to start at us first. What, what makes us tick? What turns us off? What turns us on? What are we un, uh, afraid to share? Why are we afraid? Just having a level of curiosity without shaming yourself. Yeah, I think that's good. I think it's a really great takeaway is like to have people like understand the ingredients in their soup, right? Understand how they got to how they were, whether it be their family, their culture, their genetics, their background, their education, whatever, right? It's like if you believe, and I do, that we're born a blank slate, right? To Bularasa type situation, mm-hmm. then everything that happens after birth is like, is a choice and doesn't have to be that way, right? Like you can really, if you're listening out there, you can really question everything. You can question all your assumptions. Yes. Mark, this is wonderful doing this again. Um, uh, can you give people my number or should I give people my number now? Is that the Yeah, time? absolutely. Yeah, we're, we're just about at okay. the end. I was going to okay. pitch it over to you. How can people find you? Tell us a little so, about you, right. how you work and where to get. get okay. Touch. I've got a very active practice. 30% of my clients are therapists that come to me for their own therapy. A lot of lawyers, doctors, executives, etc. I'm at 847-338-1283. rtivers470 at gmail. rtivers470 at gmail.com. And I, of course, answer all responses. Great. Incredibly generous. Well, thanks so much for joining me on the show. And for those listeners out there, if you're inspired, contact Rick, you guys, contact information, um, like the show, favorite it, send it to your friends, do all the social stuff really helps. And uh, we'll sign off here and we'll see you next week. Another episode of From the Ashes. Mark, thank you so much for your invitation. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for joining host Mark Azoulay on From the Ashes. Be sure to tune in again live next Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Meet Triumph and Defeat and treat those two imposters the same.